Let me invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this evening. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, Paul has been defending his concern for the Thessalonian believers, and he has been encouraging them in their faith to continue on in the love and the faith and the hope that they already have. But now here in chapter 4, we have a major transition that takes place. Uh, He begins here in chapter 4 with the words, finally then, which indicates now that Paul is moving from the instructional section, or or I should say the, the foundational doctrinal section of the book now to the instructional section of the book. And uh, he spent the first three chapters praising God for their faithfulness and and defending his concern. Now he turns to practical application. And so you're going to find the rest of our time in First Thessalonians to be very helpful for your personal spiritual life. And uh, there's a lot here in this one paragraph, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So I decided to break this up into two weeks. And this week I want to focus on uh, the structure of the passage, and uh, we'll, we'll make some application this week, but primarily uh, we'll spend our time in application next week, how this looks in our lives from day to day. So let me read our passage for us together uh, as we look at this together, beginning in verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the Word of God. Finally then, brethren... We request, we, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. As believers, we are called to please God by living in holiness and in love. That's what this passage is all about. We are called to please God by living in holiness and in love. And I want to show you how I I, uh, got that theme from this passage. And I I want to do that by... by, um, countering four myths four myths that we have about the Christian life. Myth number one. No one can please God. Okay? We as Christians often think that we can't please God. God is a holy God and He demands perfection. James 2.10 says that 
that um, if one person sins in one way, he is guilty of what? Okay, if he offends the law in one place, he is guilty of what? The whole law. Okay, Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, not even what? Not even one. And therefore, I should give up trying. And so we come up with this idea that we can't please God. That no one of us can please God. But that's not the truth. That is, a, that is an error in our thinking. We can please God. See, it is true that as unbelievers, Romans 8 says that unbelievers are unable and unwilling to please God. Okay? But as believers, that is not the case. You are both able and willing. You should be willing to please God. That is, as Christians, we can please God. And the reason I know that is because of verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we, re- we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, that you, the end of the verse says, that you excel still more. Okay, And, and in the parentheses there, towards the end of the verse, it says, just as you actually do walk. So you do this. So what's the implication there for, uh, for us? That is, that we can please God. The Thessalonians were pleasing God, and Paul calls them to do it even more. And so here's the point. You know, you may feel weighted down by all the responsibility that you have before God, but, but know this, as a Christian, you can please God. In fact, you're called to do that. And that's what Paul's calling us to do here in verses 1 and 2, to excel in godliness. That's what this passage is all about. You ought to live and please God. You ought to walk and please God. This is not an option. This is ha- takes the force of a command. You know, we don't come to Christ and say, you know, I, I've been spared from the eternal torment of hell, but now I'll just go on and live as I please. No, as a Christian, you are called to please God. Wasn't that the problem with the rich young ruler? He was happy to buy into Christianity as long as it meant that he could hold on to all of his independence. As long as he could be independent of God, then he was happy to follow Christ. But when Jesus says, sell everything and come follow me, well, I don't know if I want that, right? And so, that is not an option for a Christian. We can't Hold on to our independence and follow God. We follow God by being dependent upon Him, by by seeking His pleasures above our own. Do you see? Turn back to chapter 1, verse 9, because I want to show you what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to. Chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So here's the point I want to draw out from this. We didn't get bought out of slavery to sin and the idolatry that we were involved in before we came to Christ. We didn't just get bought out from that, but we were also saved to something, weren't we? Isn't that what the end of the verse says? We were, God turned us from idols to do what? Serve the living and true God. That is, to put His desires above our own. And so here's what God has called us to. 
In fact, I can say with confidence that those who live independently of God are not Christians. Those who live independently of God are not Christians. And the reason I know that is because Romans 1.28. He's talking about those who are depraved and whom God gives over to their sin. It says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Here's a picture of every unbeliever. They don't see fit to acknowledge God in their lives. They're not willing to acknowledge God's ways, God's desires. And so they live independently of, of God. Instead of God zapping them, He gives them over to their sin. Those who live independently of God are not Christians. And so here's what we need to understand, that from the time that God has saved us, He placed on us a moral oughtness. Okay, that, you see the word in chapter 4, in the middle of the verse, how you ought to walk and please God. We, we ought to do, that. we are responsible to do this. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died. This is us. When God died for us, when, when, when God the Son died for us, He died so that we would live, but that we would live no longer for ourselves, but for Him who died for us. We now live for Christ. And this process of changing our Master, okay, where God takes us away from serving our own sin and, and, and these idols that we've set up, we are now serving the living and true God. This process is what Paul describes as, verse 1, walking. He says, this is how you ought to walk and please God. This is a great way to describe the Christian life. It's not a sprint. It's not sitting down on the sidelines. It is walk. It is a walk. It is often slow, but it is methodical progress. We just keep going. You know, we get tired, but we just keep going. And it requires work on our part. Now, for the Thessalonians, it wasn't that they didn't know how to walk and please God. Notice the phrase there in parentheses, just as you actually do walk. They knew how, but what did they need? They need the same thing that we need, because we know how to live and please God for the most part. But what we need is encouragement and reminders to do that. And that's what Paul's doing for them. And that's what I think he's doing for us as well. That we need to be reminded and encouraged to walk and please God. And so Paul says this to them at the end of verse 1. Okay, Just as you're called to do this, to walk and please God, that you would do it even more. That you would excel still more. So, if as Christians we are called to please God, then that obviously implies, that shows us that we can please God and we must please God. So the first myth is no one can please God. But the Bible says that Christians can please God and we must please God. Okay, Myth number two. Myth number two. No one can know the will of God. No one can know the will of God. Look at verse 3. He, 
Paul gives us an aspect of God's will that we can know. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. We often think of the will of God as something that's secret and hidden, and therefore I either have to pray really hard so that God shows me what His will is, or I have to just leave it to fatalism. Whatever happens, happens. I just kind of sit back and, and do nothing. But the truth in the Scripture tells us that God's will can be known. Now, we need to delineate here between the two types of God's will that are talked about in the Scripture. There are two types of God's will, uh, two types of wills that are talked about in the Scripture with regard to God. Number one, His decreed will. His decreed will. That is, uh, um, I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong word. Not His decreed will. Yes, His decreed will. The, the things that He knows that will happen, that will ultimately take place. Okay, And then there's His desired will. These are the things that, that He tells us to do. And here's what I'm saying to you. In, is in chapter 4, verse 3, He's giving us His desires for us, His desired will. And we can know that. What we are often looking for is this secret will of God. That is, everything that will happen uh, is, happens according to God's plan. This is the way I often talk about them. The first one is God's plan. The second one is God's desire. So in James chapter, uh, what is it, chapter 5, I think it is. Uh, James chapter 4 says, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Okay? We don't know what ultimately God has planned for us that day. And so we have to depend upon what God has determined will happen. That's His plan, what ultimately will be carried out. And then there's this other will of God, and that is His revealed will, His desired will, what He he wants to happen, what He desires to happen. And so, when we say we can't know the will of God, it's partially true. We can't know everything that God plans, but it's not true over here. He has revealed to us what He desires for us, and so Paul lays it out. What does he say that God's will is here in verse 3? This is the will of God. What is it? Your what? Your sanctification. Okay, we often debate about the will of God in our lives with regard to particular circumstances, you know, college, job, marriage, church. And while the Scriptures, you know, I hope you understand that the the Scriptures don't tell us which one of those things to do. The Scriptures don't say, you know, you should marry... Mary Lou Sue or, or whomever. doesn't say anything about that. We have to make choices. Charles Ryrie says this, and if we would follow God's will in the areas He has revealed, trying to find out what pleases God, that's what he's talking about these things over here. If we're trying to find out what pleases God in the unrevealed areas over here, then those things will be much easier and much more possible. So, we have a huge decision that we have to make with regard to a job, let's say. And we don't know what God's will is, God's plan for us. So how do we know? What, what do I do? Do I pick job A or job B? Here's what Ryrie's saying. If we would be more concerned about God's desired will over here, what He has told us to do, this not only is going to be easy, easier, but it will become more clear to us what it is that God wants us to do. 
it, it goes along with what the psalmist says in chapter 37, verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He will do what? He will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, as you line up your desires with God's, you will be able to make choices that are in keeping with God's plan, what He actually wants to happen. Okay? And... uh Obviously, I hope you understand that we can know some aspects of God's will, particularly His desired will. Because Mark 3 says, Jesus says, whoever does the will of God is His true family. So, I hope we can figure out what God's will is. In 1 John 2.17, John says, the one who does the will of God abides forever, but I can't know God's will. But that's not what he's talking about. Okay? He's talking about God's desires for you. Can you know God's desires for you? Specifically, Paul says, his desire for you is that you, verse 3, be sanctified. God's desire for your life, his greatest desire in you, is to change you to be more like Christ, to be more holy. That's his desire for you. Now, we're going to see in two ways how that plays out in this passage. Number one, moral purity. And number two, verses 9 through 12, in love. Okay, so as Christians, we are called to please God, verses 1 and 2, by being sanctified, verse 3, and we're sanctified in moral purity, verses 4 through 8, and then in love, verses 9 through 12. That's how the structure of the passage goes, and that's how we'll look at it. Um, So we can know what God's desire is for us. Myth number three. God is solely responsible for spiritual change. God is solely responsible for spiritual change. Think about that for a second. Okay, because here's how we argue. If there's going to be spiritual change, it has to be God that does the work. I'll just sit here and wait for Him to change me because change comes from God. And there is some truth to that. Change does come from God, but... But the key word there is solely or only. Change happens in the life of a Christian not only through God. Okay, now we need to delineate what we're talking about here. Okay, so let me do that in just a second. But but let me try to illustrate how absurd that statement is. That spiritual change solely happens through God. What would you think of me if I decided to take that same extreme view with regard to physical health? And I said that God is solely responsible for my physical health. God is solely responsible for my physical health. So I'm just going to sit here, and if He wants to make me healthy, then He's going to have to make me healthy. I'm going to ignore all the signals that He's already put in my brain and my body to feed myself when I'm hungry and give drink to myself when I'm thirsty. I'm going to ignore all those things. If God wants to make me healthy, He's going to have to put food and drink in me Himself. What would you think of me if I took that view? You would think I'm an idiot, right? And you would be right. See, how much different are we when we wait on God to zap us spiritually? 
God, You are solely responsible for this change. So although I have, I have entrapped myself in this sin that is opposed to You, if You want to change me, You're going to have to come and get me. How foolish is that for us to say that God is solely... Is God responsible for our sin? Think about that for a second. Okay? Ultimately, God is in control of all things. He knows that's going to happen. He allows sin to take place, but... Is God going to stand in court because of the sin that we have committed? Or because of the spiritual growth that we've rejected? I don't want your spiritual food. I don't want it. I'm going to ignore the signals that I have that you've designed in me to turn from those things. And I'm going to expect you to zap me. You see... When it comes to sanctification, verse 3, it requires us to get up off of our seat and start working to please God, to do what He desires, His desired will, to sanctify ourselves. So, very clear what the will of God is for us. It is our sanctification. Simply another word for holiness. In fact, it's translated this way in some other parts of the Scripture, like in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. God's desire for you is your holiness. Now, I need, to, I need to explain that there are three kinds of sanctification in the Scriptures. Every believer will experience three types of, of sanctification. First is initial sanctification, or we could call it positional sanctification. That happens, as the definition sounds, initially at your salvation. It's also known as justification. That God has, in a sense, already sanctified you, hasn't He? He's already set you apart for His purposes. He set you apart to please Him. Um, we could uh, list some verses here. 1 Corinthians 6.11 talks about this. Hebrews 10.10. 1 Corinthians 6.11. Hebrews 10.10. Alright, that's initial sanctification. So in a sense, God has already sanctified you. Then there's a second aspect of sanctification, and that's this progressive action that's going on. This progressive change that's happening. That is, we could also say, not only has God sanctified us, but He is sanctifying us. He is making us holy. This is what this comes into play with a lot of the commands that we have in Scripture to be holy. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. Be sanctified. That's the idea there. Hebrews 12, 14. Without holiness, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. Okay? And then there is a third aspect of sanctification. You have initial progressive and final sanctification. So we could say it this way. God has set us apart for the purpose of holiness. God is setting us apart for the purpose of holiness. He's changing us. And God will set us apart for the purpose of holiness. That's still future for us. Do you know when that's going to happen? We will finally be changed at that glorification when we will be fully and finally separated from sin and to God. So which one do you think Paul is talking about here? Is he talking about initial sanctification? Okay, you Thessalonians need to be holy initially. 
get saved? Or is he talking about you need to grow in your holiness? Or is he talking about you need to do this? You need to be finally sanctified. Which one do you think he's talking about? The middle one, right? Progressive sanctification. Progressive holiness. This is something that we participate in. Now, if we go back to this first one, God alone is responsible for that. Obviously, we have to act in faith before we can be justified. But God is the one who brings about regeneration. We could say God is the primary mover there in justification. But He expects us not to sit back on our hands and just say, hey, zap me, but to pursue holiness. In fact, uh, we don't have time to turn there, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we see that God is the one who's behind our sanctification. God is behind it, 1 Peter 1, 2. But we have a responsibility to pursue it, Hebrews 12, 14. Without sanctification, without holiness, this progressive aspect, we will not see the Lord. We need to be holy. We need to pursue holiness. Myth number four. I have to follow my heart. I have to follow my heart. My heart is the center of who I am. And to go against my heart would be dishonest and actually hypocritical. So I have to follow my heart. I don't have a choice. Suppose a Christian married woman lives by this principle. I have to follow my heart. And she has... She believes that if she were to do otherwise, that she would be hypocritical to people around her and to herself. And a man at work or from the neighborhood comes into her life and really captivates her heart. This is a Christian married woman. He compliments her often. He seems to be very godly. So I ask you, would it be right for her to follow her heart? Okay. Don't follow your heart. It will often lead you astray. The key word there is often. It will often, It doesn't always lead you astray. Sometimes your heart is in tune with God's and you should follow it. But if that is the primary compass that you use to make decisions in your life, you will often be led astray. Why? Because Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it? Don't follow your heart. It will often lead you astray. Instead, you need to do something else, which seems impossible from our world's perspective, and that is you need to lead your heart. You need to tell your heart where you ought to go. You need to direct it. And this is going to require a pursuit of sanctification, holiness, a pursuit of godliness. Because you're going to come to situations often in your life like this Christian married woman that I mentioned. You will come to decisions where your heart says, go there, go there. Give in to your desires. It will make you most happy. And you have to lead your heart in those situations and say, no. My desire is not to please myself, but to please God ultimately. If I seek to please myself above my pleasure for God, if my joy is founding and satisfying my desires over God's desires, I'm going to be leading myself into destruction. 
And I know because God has told me that my greatest joy is not found in pursuing sin. I've been there and done that. I've seen loads of people in the Scriptures who have been there and done that, and I don't want to go there. My greatest joy is found in seeking God first and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto me. So, we don't have to follow our hearts. In fact, we ought to lead our hearts based on our understanding of the Word of God. So, we are called, verses 1 and 2, to please God. And God's will, the way that we please God, God's will for us is to live holy lives. And we do that in two ways. And this is what we're going to uh, look at for the rest of our time and for next week. We're called to please God first by living holy lives, verses 3 through 8. Let me just show you that there are three phrases that modify sanctification in the next three verses. And we'll talk about them more next week. Okay, First, this is the will of God, your sanctification. The first phrase is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, So that's number one. Number two, verse four, that, you, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Okay, So the point there we're going to talk about is... Number one, abstain from sexual immorality. Number two, know how to control your body. That's what possessing your own vessel means. Okay, And then number three, verse six. This is a third phrase that modifies sanctification. Here's how we do it. We don't defraud our brother. And we'll talk about what that means next week. I'm going to suggest that it means don't commit adultery. These are all connected ideas. Verses seven and eight give us the reasons why we ought not to do that. And then, verses 9 through 12, talk about how we live lives of love. Okay, So, we please God, verses 1 and 2, by being sanctified, the first part of verse 3, and we're sanctified by abstaining from moral impurity, and then, verses 9 through 12, by living in love. Alright, so I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about verses 9 and 12, and we'll come back to verses 3 through 8 next week. Our responsibility to brotherly love, verses 9 through 11. Notice verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren. Notice how Paul starts that. Now, as to. It sounds like Paul, remember, we're we're only hearing one side of the conversation, so it sounds like Paul is addressing a specific question from his readers that maybe Timothy came back and, and brought to him because Timothy was the one who go check up on this church. And Paul is saying, listen, When it comes to the love of brethren, you have a responsibility. In fact, the opposite of pursuing your sexual pleasures, your sinful sexual pleasures, is to show love to your brother. And again, Paul's going to say here in these verses, you don't need anybody to tell you. Notice verse 9, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. The point is, you, you already know how to love and please God. You know how to do that. Why? Because verse 9 says they were taught by God. They knew because God had written it on their consciences, right? We understand this. No one should have to tell us when a person comes to our church that, you know, no one has to tell us you need to stop treating that person like garbage. We know that. We, we know what it means to treat a person in love. 
And so I think that's what Paul's saying here. Listen, you know how to love. So all I'm going to do here is remind you about your responsibility and give you motivation for it. For verse 10, the Thessalonians were already showing love. Again, Paul's reminding them to continue in it. Verse 10, For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But here's what I'm doing for you. I'm urging you to do it even more, to excel even more. Every believer in Macedonia knows your love. You know why? Because you've expressed your love to them. Now we say, well, that's, that's a lot. I mean, But think about it. The church is fairly new in, in the area of Macedonia. There are very few churches there. And the Thessalonians very likely did show love to every believer by sending gifts to them, sending uh, gifts to help care for their needs. And they probably helped them out in more than just financial ways. So I'm not just saying that you know our love for other believers is just shown in, in financial ways. But the point was that they were very concerned about showing love for others. Here's, one of the, here, here's three ways how we can show love for others. Verse 11. Number one, lead a quiet life. Lead a quiet life. Now, this may sound very good to those of you who lead a busy life and perhaps have small children at home. You know, I would love to have a quiet life and just have my own problems to worry about. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about living an isolated life. That's not what he's talking about because look at verse 12 so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. Okay, So he's not talking about to move into a position of isolation so that you can live a quiet life. Instead, he's talking about the opposite of being a busybody. Being concerned in an unloving way for other people's affairs. Okay? Being in everybody else's business without needing to be. Instead, you ought to show your love for other believers by leading a quiet life. Not putting your nose where it doesn't belong. Okay, that's the idea there. Number two, the second way we show our love for the brethren. We attend to our own business. See that in verse 11? Attend to your own business. Hey, don't, don't, don't be getting involved in other people's business. Um, the Bible is very clear that we need to, to, to just mind our own business. Dr. Compton gives us a direction with a few pointed questions as to how we do this. Okay, how, how do we tell the difference between proper involvement in someone else's business and improper involvement in someone else's business? How do we know the difference? Because does that mean I just don't ever show concern for them at all? Never ask about anything that's going on in their lives? Is that what Paul is calling for? And Dr. Compton gives us direction here. He, he asks a couple pointed questions. Are we becoming involved in someone else's business for the purpose of spiritual well-being? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Because if we're being a busybody, we're not helping anyone. We're only satisfying our own desires to know more or to be nitpicky in other people's lives. So, are we doing it for the spiritual well-being of the other person? Secondly, is our seeking to become involved motivated out of biblical, sincere love? Are we doing it for the benefit of them, to, to build them up, as Ephesians says? 
And then are we doing it motivated out of love, out of genuine concern for them? Or are we just trying to stir up the pot? Number three, the third way that we show love to our brothers and sisters in Christ is by working with our own hands. See that in verse 11? Work with your own hands just as we commanded you. This seems to be a problem in Thessalonica because he's going to address it again in 2 Thessalonians. The point here is that they need to have gainful employment. Apparently, some had given up working and were uh, trying to live off maybe generous or wealthy Christians. It's hard to say for sure because Paul does say, you already are showing love to other people. So, so maybe they were all gainfully employed. But the point is, you shouldn't come to a place where you are dependent upon other people. See, in, the, in those days, working was looked at by the pagans as unnecessary. In fact, it was degrading to be in the workforce. That was for slaves. If you've arrived, then you've moved beyond work. In Paul's second letter, he's going to challenge this by saying, whoever doesn't work shouldn't what? Shouldn't eat. Alright, so the way that we show our love for brothers is not stirring up trouble, okay, being at peace, leading a quiet life, attending to our own business, not being a busybody, and then thirdly, by working with our own hands. Having gainful employment so that we're not dependent upon other people. And then he gives two motivations or two reasons why we should love our brothers. Verse 12, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. That is, so that you will have proper conduct toward unbelievers. What will unbelievers think of you if you are, okay, and I'm going, I'm going to use a strong term here, if you are leeching off of other people? What will unbelievers think of you? Okay, so work with your own hands so that you have a proper uh, testimony to unbelievers. And then secondly, the second reason we ought to show brotherly love is so that we will not be dependent on other people for daily necessities. Because Christians who are in need because of idleness or laziness are disobedient Christians. At best. Okay? If, if we are in need for our daily necessities because of laziness or idleness, then that's a problem with God. In fact, let me just show you 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul is a little bit stronger here in his language with regard to this responsibility. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. That's the lazy part I was just talking about. Doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Okay, so we should not be in need because of any fault of our own. That doesn't mean that no person will ever be in need, but we should not be in need because of our own laziness. And this is consistent with the model of brotherly love that we saw in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. We reduce the burden of other people 
by helping to carry their load when they have too much to bear. Okay, well, this is how we show love. We help carry their load. But also by carrying our own load. Not putting unnecessary stress on other people by passing off all of our responsibilities to other people, but taking care of ourselves. And I think specifically when it comes to work, that is working with diligence to a point where our daily needs are being taken care of. All right, so we have a responsibility to to live to please God. This is what God has called us to do. We have been called to please God. And the way that we do that is by living holy lives. And Paul tells us at least two ways that we can do that. One is by moral purity, and two is by living in brotherly love. And as I mentioned in uh, a few weeks ago, brotherly love is shown in genuine concern. Brotherly love is shown in genuine concern. Those who are genuinely concerned for their Christian family will know about their spiritual life and will want to encourage them with regard to the things of God. That's not being a busybody. That is serving one another with proper motivations. I want to help them on to God, to move them to the next level of spirituality. You know, uh, I I heard a great illustration this week about how we can picture this. If we picture a Christian who's come to Christ on a, a spectrum from A to Z. A being when they first came to Christ, still learning things about uh, God and how we ought to serve them and so on. And Z being that they are, have been glorified, let's say. Okay? They, they've made it to the next life and God has presented them as pure. That you could put people all on all different letters throughout this spectrum, right? All of us are on there somewhere and the goal is not to find out where we are. But the goal is to move someone else, to help move ourselves, but also to help move someone else to the next letter. So if someone's at a D in their progressive sanctification, we need to help move them to an E. Okay? What, what can we do to help move them to an E? What, what can we do to encourage them in their walk with God so that they move to the next step? They're not going to overnight move to a mature Christian, are they? Just like none of us did. It's just taking steps. That's why I say the Christian life is about more about walking than about sprinting. It's taking small steps of faithfulness, of godliness, saying yes to God. I'm going to do that. I'm going to obey. I'm going to eliminate that sin. And we just keep moving on. So we can all help each other no matter where we're on the spectrum. If we're way back here, we can help encourage someone else to move on who's ahead of us to the next level of spirituality. If we're up here, we can help someone behind us or in front of us and encourage them to move on to the next level. What would our church be like if all of us were seeking to show brotherly love to one another by being concerned about their spiritual well-being motivated by a heart of love for them? What would our church be like? Would it be any different than it is now? Or are we all all meeting this expectation that God has for us? Because this is what it means to please God. This is God's will for us. To live in holiness. And part of that means showing genuine concern for one another. Next week we will um, talk about our responsibility for moral purity. And uh, 
There's some great application in here for each of us, men and women. So I encourage you to be here for that. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful that You have not left us in the dark or in confusion about what we're supposed to do. We're thankful that You have not told us what You do desire of us. But You've made it clear, especially in passages like this, that Your will is our holiness. It is to please You. And we have been given the ability now as Christians to be able to do that. Not on our own, certainly. We don't live independently of You. But dependently, we can please You as the Spirit empowers us to do so. And so we ask for Your help. We recognize that unless You build the house, we labor in vain when we build it. So we ask for Your help. But we also don't want to blame You when we fail to grow spiritually. Because we have a responsibility to be complicit with the work of Your Spirit. And we ask for Your help as we seek to do that. May Your your word empower us. May it, may it mold our consciences so that we're directed in the right way, so that we're doing what is right and wanting to do what is right. And specifically with regard to our love for one another, may you help us in that way. We all don't love as much as we ought. Similar to prayer. The, the discipline of prayer. We don't pray as much as we should and, and I don't think we can ever get to the place where we're loving other people as much as we should. And so we, we need Your help. We need Your Spirit to continue to prompt us, help us to be sensitive to Him. May Your Word guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two hundred eight.